Coming up on Mayo Clinic Q&A. The last day in the United States, the number of cases increased by 40%, New coronavirus questions answered by an infectious disease specialist. That we are indeed seeing more and more cases and evidence of wider spread community transmission in various parts of the nation. How can you safely isolate when you're in tight quarters? They get their own bedroom. They don't come out of that room without a mask. They're not having dinner face to face with the others in the family. What's the best plan for recovering if you're diagnosed with the virus? Get enough sleep, adequate nutrition, proper exercise, in this case, outdoors. It's really a question about what what about the people who have symptoms? Most of them can be managed at home. And what's the latest on medicines for people who've contracted COVID-19? This has really been, you know, the race, if you will, because it's going to take a long time to develop. There are a number of them in clinical trials, but nothing has been published that would tell us definitively yet. Answers to these and other COVID-19 questions next on Mayo Clinic Q&A. Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. For another coronavirus update, we're joined on the phone by Mayo Clinic infectious disease and vaccine expert, Dr. Greg Poland. Dr. Poland, good to talk to you. Good to be back and talking with you. Now, uh, Dr. Poland, you suggested in a recent editorial, I think a week or so ago, that the United States really needed to go into what you called suspend mode, that we needed drastic and clear action. Are we there yet? Uh, I think we are very much at that inflection point. We are right now at a point where if we do this, we could do what happened in Korea, where we flatten the curve out. If we don't do it, it's likely we'll be more like Italy and see an explosion of cases. We're recording this on Thursday, March 19th. What has changed since the last time we spoke about a, a week ago? I think what's happening is that we are indeed seeing more and more cases and evidence of wider spread community transmission in various parts of the nation. Now, so far, I think the CDC said today we've got about 10,000 confirmed cases in the United States, over 150 deaths. Um, Does that seem like too many or about what you would have expected for now? I think about what we would expect, but uh, one thing that's really critical and I think hard for people to understand, what we are seeing today is a reflection of reality two weeks ago. So what we ex- what we have today will not be what we will see two weeks from now. So in the last day in the United States, the number of cases increased by 40%, 4-0. That's why I call this an inflection point. So you would expect that number to keep going up and then hopefully the curve would flatten and tell us exactly what that means. So if we were to institute true social distancing and go into a suspend mode, meaning nothing non-essential happens unless it can be done, uh, for example, by teleworking, so where we don't have people together, if we were to do that, we will see cases increase quite a bit for about 10 to 14 days after we institute that uh, suspend mode. If we don't do that, we'll see cases continue to increase. And in 10 to 14 days, we will see that curve go up the way a rocket goes up straight. 
Can you please tell us what does it mean to safely self-isolate and what does it incorrect safe isolation look like? Well, what, what self-isolation really gets at is this, and it sounds kind of self-obvious, but if you don't breathe in the virus or touch a contaminated surface and touch your eyes, nose, or mouth, it is impossible to get infected with this. So the idea behind social distancing, but behind uh, self-isolation, is that you take away the opportunity to inadvertently breathe in this virus or to touch a contaminated surface that somebody else has touched or coughed or sneezed on so that you don't become infected. In essence, what's that, what that is doing is what we call suppressing the r naught. That's the reproductive number of the virus. Right now, just to use a round number, it's about two or less. If we can suppress it to under one, meaning that for every one infected person, they spread it to one or less people, then we will see this pandemic abate. Now, do we know how long this virus can stay active in the air and also on a surface? We do. There are some nice studies that have been done um, showing that it can last anywhere from two hours to nine days, heavily dependent on the inoculum size, that is how much virus, on the ambient temperature, on the ambient humidity, and the amount of exposure to UV light. That's why it's really important that we are trying to get across to people the idea of washing your hands before you touch your face or eat and disinfecting, sanitizing, publicly touched surfaces, whether that means, as Tracy was asking, in your home, in your workplace, or wherever your setting may be. If someone in my house has the virus, what should, um, because isn't it about 50% of us are going to catch this virus? Is that what the last odds were? Is that, am I making that up or is that right? Yeah, so uh, you're referring, Tracy, to mathematical modeling studies. So, so with that proviso, okay, the, the estimates have been as low as 40%, as high as 70% of people in the UK and in the US. So what does that mean in a household? Same thing it means right now. You want to have social distancing, isolation of those that are sick from those that are not. What would that look like? Let's say you had an adult in the home that was sick. They get their own bedroom, ideally with an open window. They don't come out of that room without a mask. Um, they, they're not having dinner face-to-face with the others in the family. The surfaces that they touch outside of the room and inside of the room are wiped down regularly with a, for example, uh, bleach or Lysol-type solution. That's what that, that's what that looks like at the home level. So if someone has the virus, it's a good idea to wear a mask. What if you don't have it, even if you're in the same household? It, does it help to wear a mask? The way that a mask helps you is really kind of twofold. One, it prevents you from inhaling large respiratory droplets, and it is a memory aid to keep your hands off your eyes, nose, and mouth. What it does not prevent is the aerosolized virus, which is an important way in which this virus is transmitted, but it tends to be more with cough or as physicians when we do procedures that cause the, the virus to be aerosolized. But That's if you when do- you have to wear a different kind of mask, like an N95. 
But if you do get the virus, you should wear a mask. Yes. All right. Now, are there any medications that are available that that will help alleviate the symptoms or speed the recovery if you do get the virus? Yeah, Tom, this has really been, you know, the race, if you will, because it's going to take a long time to develop a vaccine. And so what's the next step? It's either polyclonal or monoclonal antibody therapy, or it's devising or more importantly, repurposing existing antiviral medications to try to help. And there have been a lot of them proposed. There are a number of them in clinical trials right now, but nothing has been published in terms of a randomized clinical trial that would tell us definitively yet. But I'm thinking for symptom treatment, and particularly non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. We have heard that you shouldn't be taking ibuprofen if you have the virus. Yeah, so um, that was a recommendation made by the French government and the WHO. I don't happen to share that recommendation because I don't see an evidence base to support that. Nonetheless, the preferred medication would be something like acetaminophen. Non-steroidals, particularly in the older adult population who are more likely to have symptoms, have other adverse effects. For example, water and sodium retention or bleeding risk. The president said he would like to fast track the antiviral treatments. Is that possible? Yes, um, the the president has what's called uh, emergency use authorization privileges. So he could determine whether it's an antiviral or a a, a therapeutic or a vaccine that we and his advisors say the the risk of the disease is greater than the risk of uh, an unfully, not fully tested uh, uh, therapy. And and they they could release it for that purpose. So we know that older Americans and those with chronic diseases are more at risk of getting the coronavirus. And then recently we saw a headline that said the World Health Organization warns that some children develop severe or critical disease from coronavirus. Is there, is there any age group that's safe? Um, I, I would say there's, there's no age group that's perfectly safe. And it's not an issue of more likely to catch the virus. It's an issue of more likely to have symptoms or severe disease. So we know that the older you are, the more comorbidities you have. Uh, When in the course of the epidemic, pandemic, you get the infection makes a difference in in case fatality rate. So it's, you know, these numbers are based on populations, but when it comes down to the individual, you have to look at that in a very individualized way. Do you think the um, millennials, as they've been accused of, are the ones who are actually spreading this disease and they're not really taking the proper precautions as older Americans are doing? I don't think that they're responsible for spreading any more disease than anybody else. But I do share the concern that they have gotten the message that, well, this isn't going to affect me. So when I go out, for example, and I'm riding my bike, I see the bars and the restaurants still crowded. I see people crowded on, on the beaches down here. And I'm, I'm quite surprised by this. And I think it's because, you know, at that age, and didn't we all, we kind of thought we were invincible. Right. And they may not recognize the risk to not only themselves, and, but others, particularly Uh, people at higher risk. Last week, we were all being advised on how to talk to our children about coronavirus and about COVID-19. Would you please tell me how to speak to my aging parent about COVID-19? 
Yeah, I, I think it's the same way we want to talk to everybody. It's, it's facts, not fears. It's uh, showing them what wisdom is, which is being informed, being appropriately prepared. But one still has to go on living life, at least in some context. What's the best plan for recovering if you are diagnosed with COVID-19? Well, I, I think what we need to remember is that 80% of the population who gets this is going to have mild or no symptoms. So other than isolation until they are well, there's really nothing else they need to do other than what all of us need to do all the time. Get enough sleep, adequate nutrition, uh, proper exercise, in this case outdoors or in your garage. <laughs> um, it's really a question about what, what about the people who have symptoms? Most of them can be managed at home because the only treatment is symptomatic. The ones that are of concern are people who have more severe disease who need medical support or maybe even ventilatory or blood pressure support. They have to be hospitalized. So let's talk about testing. I think there are a number of tests available around the country. What are the criteria that you need to meet to, to get a test? Yeah, th those criteria have are very fluid and in some cases have been suspended. Um, now, what does that mean for the medical system? Obviously, you can't handle 5,000 tests a day at this point. Uh, capacity is of necessity limited. So what we're trying to do as physicians is to say, well, we're going to test the people who have had exposure to somebody that has a confirmed case, that has traveled to a high-risk area. Those would be, or, or symptoms that are deteriorating and where we think, well, maybe this isn't influenza, this could be something else. Those are the appropriate people to be treating right now until such point where we have point-of-care assays or we grow the capacity enormously in order to really detect what does that base of the pyramid look like? How many people are out there who have had infection and have recovered or have in, are infected but don't know it? That's a tough one to get your head around. I'm a wannabe infectious disease wonk, Dr. Poland. So here's a question I have for you. What percentage of the population needs to have had the virus built up, you know, had the virus, recovered from it, and it built up natural immunity before you'll start to see a decline in this virus? That's a, that's a great question, Tracy, and I, I really wish I could give you a quantitative answer. What you're getting at is a concept called herd immunity, and we don't know what that number is. What we can say is look at the amount of infection that occurred in China, and today was the first day so far that they have not reported any cases. So the qualitative answer is it has to be very widespread for a very long time before uh, we would get to that point. My other question has to do with SARS. How is this different than the SARS epidemic? Well, it's similar in many ways and different in some critical ways. One of the ways in which and SARS was different is that there were super spreaders. We have not yet identified super spreaders with SARS-CoV-2. Another important way is that for the most part, people with SARS did not transmit it to other people until they had symptoms. Very different from this disease where it's becoming apparent the transmission can occur when people are asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic. 
So uh, a big difference. The other thing is that we're, we're certainly seeing a lot of severe disease across the nation. This particular virus has a piece on it called the S protein, the spike protein, that is very efficiently adapted to bind with the cellular receptor and cause infection, probably more so than SARS was which is going to be an issue. What's viral shedding? What does that phrase mean when I hear that in the news? What that means is that somebody is actually, if you will, shedding the virus, meaning that we can detect it in their mucus, in their sputum, when they cough, in their nose, in their mouth. That is a, a it's saying that the virus is present and able to be shed and transmitted to others. Well, let's talk about a vaccine briefly. Do you think we'll have a medication to treat it before we have a vaccine to prevent it? I would think probably so, Tom. I just think that the regulatory pathway for a vaccine, we have to be very slow, deliberate, peer-reviewed, data evidence before we start injecting a vaccine into people before it's been fully safety tested. Well, of course, we have to ask you about toilet paper. Uh, it seems to have become the icon of mass panic. Uh, is there any reason for people to be hoarding toilet paper? I, this one mystifies me, to tell you the truth. I, I do not understand that. It is not as if this disease regularly causes diarrhea. I mean, there are about 3 to 5% of adults that have diarrhea or GI symptoms. But it is not uh, what I would hoard. And uh, you sent me a question asking what what would I stock up on? Yeah. Well, this is a little personal, but cheap yellow mustard and dark chocolate because <laughs> I love those two things. About domestic travel, uh, do you think that's appropriate? Would you be afraid uh, to travel domestically? It's not so much afraid as aware that I would be violating the very principle that I'm espousing, which is when you get onto an airplane with whatever, 200, 500 other people, you are increasing the chance of transmitting that virus to other people who then disembark that plane, and let's say there were 500 of them, go to 500 other geographic locations. And you can see how a virus like this could exponentially spread. My personal opinion, I know it's disruptive, is that the way to beat this is to suspend those activities on on a temporary basis. Um, It seems like you're fairly optimistic that we're actually doing that. I I think we have started down that road. I think, and, and, and here's how I talk to Uh, the government and to organizations about it. Imagine that we actually do head toward the the, uh, more adverse case scenarios that are happening. What would we have wanted to do now to unwind that from happening? And and I know you can go overboard with that, and I know that uh, particularly economically this is disruptive. But I think in view of what we're seeing, what we need to do is suspend those activities. Now, the problem is it doesn't work unless everybody does it. All right, I guess they're clearing the beaches down in Florida, so maybe that'll help, yeah. So you think the warm weather will help? Um, That's really speculation based on what we saw with SARS. That started in November of 2002, and by July of 2003, disappeared. Now, there are other factors involved, but that is one reason people are speculating 
along with the fact that the normal four seasonal human coronaviruses that circulate every year disappear during the summer, spring time frame, only to reappear in the fall. Well, we'll hope it warms up uh, soon. So much great information, Dr. Poland. One last question. What is your best advice for people and their families at this point in the pandemic? I really think, and again, I, I understand this is disruptive. I really think that let's, let's work with each other to, to learn good hand-washing technique. Let's cover our cough, that is respiratory at etiquette. And let's learn how to clean our hands or sanitize our hands after touching any public surface and before touching our, our uh, eyes, nose, or mouth, and then suspending those activities that are non-essential. Going to a movie house or a restaurant is non-essential at a time like this. So the fate of the virus is in our hands. That's why I feel optimistic, Tom, is I, I don't don't feel like a victim here. I think we know what to do, even with the, the limited amount of knowledge that we've gathered in, inside of three months. We know those things work if we will do them as a nation. Dr. Greg Poland, infectious disease and vaccine expert from the Mayo Clinic. Thanks so much for being with us. My pleasure. Mayo Clinic Q&A is a production of Mayo Clinic News Network and is available wherever you get and subscribe to your favorite podcasts. To see a list of all Mayo Clinic Q&A podcasts, visit newsnetwork.mayoclinic.org. Then click on podcasts. Thanks for listening and be well. We hope you'll offer a review of this and other episodes when the option is available. Comments and questions can also be sent to Mayo Clinic News Network at mayo.edu.